You're listening to an OTB AM podcast. You can watch the show or listen live every weekday morning from 7.45 AM. Subscribe to the OTB AM podcast stream for more stuff just like this. Very good morning to you. It's Kylian Mbappe's world and we're just living in it. That's right. It was a very routine 2-0 win for Paris Saint-Germain in Manchester last night against Manchester United. And the Ole Gunnar Solskjaer daydream, fever dream, call it what you will. Is it over? Is that the end for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer? Are we saying now that he can't get the job full-time? Is the knee-jerk reaction to one defeat so great that that's it? I mean, yes, is the answer, right? (laughs) Uh, It's the debate now that that we're going to have is we, we clearly overreacted to something. Did we overreact to how good a manager Ole Gunnar Solskjaer is, or did we overreact to how good a set of players Ole Gunnar Solskjaer had at his disposal? And I think the answer is probably the latter, isn't it? Yeah, I, look, I don't, I don't know if it's a uh, fatal blow to him getting the job, but the bit where it was guaranteed and nailed on and uh, the only... Yeah, it was Sean Custis had it in the sun that they were... Neil Custis. Neil Custis, that they had it done and that it, they were just going to wait until the end of the season to announce it. Would you be sure that that's the case anymore? No, no, definitely not. But the thing is, what, what exactly are we blaming Solskjaer here for in the context of last night? In terms of how they started the game, in terms of how they set up, you can't really blame him for his team selection. They started quite well. They harried PSG quite well. They didn't create a chance now, uh, which is probably a black mark against perhaps some of the attacking play. But without the ball, uh, that attacking set was fairly good, I thought. And, and they started the game pretty well. Then when the injuries happen, and I see people blaming Solskjaer for the subs that were made. And granted, in a game that was that high octane, perhaps Juan Mata is not the man for that sort of setup. Well, that's not Kenny said but, that he, he would have brought on Lukaku instead of Mata. Well, that's exactly that's what I was about to say. But what is the alternative? It's Lukaku and. Is that not better? Like, maybe. It, it is better. There's, 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 a is bit, better. there's a bit more pace there. But there's, a, there's a bit more uh, power in the running. He's a bit more of a handful than Juan Mata is. Look, here's the thing. We don't actually know anything about football, right? Just as a quick example, Villa are 3-0 down with like 15 minutes left to go on Friday night, and they bring on a defensive midfielder in Glenn Whelan, and the game gets flipped on its arse immediately by his midfield maestrosity, uh, and all of a sudden by having somebody there to protect the defence and move the ball forward feel like get back into the game so I don't know it's cause and effect of like a million different interconnected things maybe bringing one mat on was exactly the right decision and in a game like that where it is all pace and stuff you want somebody to go whoa stop as opposed to having an outlet ball in the form of Lukaku I don't know Kenny said he thought Lukaku was a better choice. He knows a bit more about football than I do, so I'm going to go with Kenny. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. But my point is that Juan Mata is going to be... He's, he's going to be in and around the Manchester United team. Lukaku is going to be in and around the Manchester United team. Sanchez, who clearly looks a shadow of his former self, is definitely going to be in and around the Manchester United team. That we clearly just overstated, perhaps, how good some of these Manchester United players are. Like I, I personally held a lot of hope that Alexis Sanchez was going to make some sort of comeback to his Arsenal days, to his Barcelona days, in terms of form. Maybe not at that level, but something close to it. But it turns out he's just finished. It, last night, does it certainly lends itself to that idea, for sure. I would be very, very worried as a Manchester United fan having... Being weighed down by Alexis Sanchez at this point, but like that is uh, an issue that came before Solskjaer. It's not going to help his cause from here on out if things start to go, if if it starts to take a a downturn. But you'd like to think he's got enough credit in the bank with the players in the dressing room that this is not going to start some sort of precipitous decline in the sense of the season. PSG are excellent. Like once you get, like I, I don't think that they have. 
if they get any more bad luck, basically, in attacking areas over the next couple of months and the return to injury, uh, the return to fitness of Cavani and Neymar is any bit delayed, I think perhaps they can get taken off by, by an underdog. But I think the way they're going at the moment, as a starting 11, uh, they're probably too good to get picked off by this Manchester United team. And granted, that's not what we were saying yesterday, but I think we've come to a realisation of where Manchester United are at as a result of what we've seen. Yeah, and like Man United didn't win the Champions League every season under... Alex Ferguson, this was the stage of the tournament that they got to more regularly than any other stage. He won it twice in 20-odd years. So you... Like, the basis of giving him the job is that he understands exactly what the team are trying to do um, and knows the history and tradition well enough to be able to appeal to the supporters to give him time to build stuff, but also wants to play in a style that reflects the club's traditions. Right, it's it's a relatively straightforward thing. He wants to play attacking football. His defense isn't strong enough at the moment. Yeah, like when you saw the team that he named, they have to go with that centre back partnership that went out last night. And Phil Jones doesn't come off the bench. He doesn't think Phil Jones is a starter in the team. Fair enough. He's right. Yeah, right. But uh, they need this a, is my point exactly. They need a better centre back, and they need two better centre midfielders. And he inherited. Fred, who doesn't get a minute last night, who is on the bench, and he inherits Matic and Herrera, and maybe he writes Herrera a little bit, but um, I don't know. And also, I think we can like just puncture the Rashford stuff a little bit. He's a good player at the moment. He has potential, but he is nowhere near the same conversation as Kylian Mbappe. Not close to being in the same conversation. Yeah, that, 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 that was certainly a bit of a, a leap. But I, I do think that in terms of... Uh, the potential there he has ridiculously high potential and like we, we just didn't see him getting in behind the, the PSG defence last night why that was perhaps ridiculously high potential suggests he could be as good as Kylian Mbappe he can't be he's nowhere near he's not going to make that conversation ever like he's not he's not going to be as good as I'm not sure I necessarily agree with that he's not going to be as, as uh, like okay now the thing is okay no okay so the, uh, before uh, like I, I, I get twisted here uh, my words get twisted here Kylian Mbappe is the next Lionel Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, as in the, the Ballon d'Or favourite every single year. So will Rashford get to that level? Probably not. But will he get to where Mbappe is now, as in like the third best player in the world consistently? I think there is a potential for that to happen. Like, you know, whoever the other person was that was like making up the Ballon d'Or conversation alongside Ronaldo and Messi? Xavi. Uh, Xavi, exactly. Like that, that sort of, Rashford has I, Xavi potential? I, I'm no. t- like, Marcus Rashford has world-class potential. World class potential. Uh, I think, I think like I, I really believe that. Maybe I'm maybe I'm getting carried away by what he's put in over the last ten games or so. I think but I really, I honestly believe that. Like it's it, what you are right on is the what Manchester United would have. Xavi was the best midfielder of his generation. Okay, like, but like if we talk about like Xavi would have won Ballon d'Or if, if Lionel Messi wasn't around at that point. I think it's it's not comparing like with like at that point. I'm saying that it, can he be the third best player in the world at a certain point when th- this era of so young period or for a full season for two years. For three years, of, of a young, like of this young generation, if you're picking out the 2021, 20, 22 year olds who are going to be the best players in the world in four or five years' time, now Mbappe's already got to that level or is very, very close to that level, you suspect. Like if Rashford makes any more improvements, like I, I really do believe that he can be in that conversation. All right. Like, I, like if you think last night punctured that, then like if we, if we can get carried away with 10 games, uh, or if you can get carried away with one game last night, then we can get carried away with 10 games on the plus Marcus Rashford side over the last couple of months. Yeah, that was the biggest game. That was the biggest test for Solskjaer and for that team. And 
you can't say they are close to passing it. They failed it. They well, failed to be test. fair, like Mbappe was really, really good last night. I thought Angel Di Maria was their best player. Mbappe's performance was helped by Angel Di Maria. Mbappe's performance was helped by the fact that Marco Verratti and uh, Marquinhos were unbelievable last night and really showed that Manchester United were lacking in midfield. Yeah, like I, marking Paul Pogba out of the game probably didn't help um, Marcus Rashford's cause last night. I've kind of been backed into a corner here where I'm backing up Marcus Rashford and kind of have to push him as the world's best player at this point. I'm just saying calm down a little bit and just realise that this guy's graph is still growing and uh, his ceiling is extremely high. Okay. I've, been, I've been pushed into a corner here saying, saying that, top, top that, he's going, that he's going to be the next Chavi like I'm, I'm saying out loud I'm calming myself down here but that like can we just, can we just realise what calm this guy's down, potential is yeah okay you say it's uh, top three in the world I'm like uh, I just remain to be convinced that over a 10 year period he's going to put in a Javi-esque career where you know he wins a World Cup he's the best player in the but world obviously here. I can't obviously I can't argue that point now I can't argue that point okay, I, okay, I've okay, just got okay. a lot Let's of hope okay. it's, good, it's good to have hope but it is the hope that's going to kill you uh, we'll talk about Nicholas Cruz on the back of this because I just want to play you this clip first in uh, 1988 the Cuban boxing coach Nicholas Cruz Nicholas Cruz Hernandez is his full name arrived in Ireland he went on to become one of the masterminds behind Wayne McCullough's uh, silver medal and Michael Cruz's gold in Barcelona in 1992 he's got an amazing backstory Andy Lee has been down to Port Leash to spend some time with them. The resulting film will be uh, going live on all of our uh, channels over the course of the next 24 hours or so. But we're going to play a little bit before you today. Here's the first clip. Have a look. I'm on the way to Port Leash to interview Nicholas Cruz Hernandez, um, former Irish national team coach, um, a guy who I think had a huge impact and influence on boxing in Ireland over the years. And I think his influence is still felt to this day that he planted a lot of the seeds. I first would have met Nicholas around the year 2000 when I was training for my first ever international competition. And even then he was, I guess he was an oddity and someone who was very intriguing. There was always this level of um, curiosity about him and mysticism about him and the way he'd done things. And I guess that was because he was so far ahead of his times. Irish boxers were always known for heart, courage, and fight, fighting, and having all the things that you couldn't teach. But with Nicholas, he came in to add the extra elements that you need to be a successful international boxer in terms of the finesse of boxing and the ring craft and the generalship that, we, that, you, that is needed. With him, he was trying to add the technique to all the things that was already there. Yeah, the, the backstory is that um, he ends up in Cuba but having to defect and Ireland is ultimately where he ends up. How that happens will be covered a little bit later for you in the story. But um, it's, an, it's a remarkable career really when you consider that, uh, as Andy said, we had all this amazing talent pool but just didn't quite have the coaching pedigree. Go to Cuba, inject that into the system and um, you know, Billy Walsh obviously is one of his fighters too. And um, Billy Walsh goes on to become one of the best coaches in the history of amateur boxing, obviously tearing up trees at the moment in the US as well, and one of the central architects of uh, our amateur boxing success before we eat ourselves and uh, end up you know, in the sorry mess that we're in at the moment. But more of that a little bit later for you on the show. Uh, coming up on the show this morning, we'll obviously play that a little bit later on. I'm going to talk to James Collin about the situation in France. Obviously, he's out there at the moment. Uh, coaching and um, has a, a fair idea of what the talent pool might be like and why are France such a basket case in the Six Nations. Andy Mitten's going to join us in just a minute to talk about Manchester United. We'll run through all the newspapers today and uh, Darren's going to come in and give us um, a blast of all of the news, including the story of um, 
the uh, short sojourn at St. Pat's that Gordon Banks had uh, when he was still one of the best goalkeepers in the world. So all of that coming your way between now and half past nine this morning. As ever, though, if you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet the show. We're at Off the Ball AM or we're hashtag OTBAM. Now, I want to play you this. Uh, we're getting straight into Manchester United's defeat to Paris Saint-Germain in the Champions League last night. The game was live on Virgin Sport. Here's Niall Quinn on the lessons that Paris Saint-Germain gave Solskjaer side. Have a look most admirable thing about the performance tonight was no matter how much pressure the United players and those young, fit, energetic United players put on and they went for it from the start, they just toyed with United, they played the ball around beautifully they kept possession in the most difficult circumstances and then when the time was needed they, uh, they had the skill and expertise to go and score goals, I mean that's just that's it in a nutshell in, in terms of the difference Man United had none of that, fair play for their effort, they were gallant, mm. the Manchester United team, but they came up against a crack outfit who you know, gave them a lesson in some respects in retaining the ball and in, uh, I suppose, showing a strength when they didn't have it. To, mm. to, you know, there was no way they were going to be breached. And, and it, was, it was just, you know, the difference. I watched United at the weekend, Fulham. You know, Different they toyed with Fulham and everything yeah. was great. And the United oh. way was good. This is a big lesson. Yeah, it's a big step up. All right. Uh, Virgin Media Sport is the new home of European football in Ireland with more than 400 UEFA Champions League, Europa League and Nations League games live this season. Virgin Media Sport is exclusive to all Virgin Media TV customers. You can also download the TV Anywhere app and stream all the action whenever and wherever they like. We've seen this so often, really, where... Um, a team is coming and gets a lot of praise rightly for the distance that they cover in terms of 10, 12 weeks ago when the draw was made for example this would have been a fairly predictable outcome not that much has changed beyond the sense of self-confidence and identity that Manchester United have forged over the last 10, 12 weeks it's still the same groups of players ultimately and that's what decides this Yeah, like obviously when you talk about the same groups of players when we were previewing this game you had Jose Mourinho as manager of Manchester United and you had Neymar and Cavani who were supposed to be fit for this game so things had narrowed a little bit between the two sides and maybe after a couple of minutes last night you were thinking this thing might be on for Manchester United and uh, like you, you do wonder how different would the first half have been if it were not for the away goals rule would we have seen a little bit more of an adventurous PSG they kind of sat back and were happy enough to, to play on the counter a little bit at times in that first half yeah. and obviously let the shackles off a little bit more in the second half but the other thing about that is that they're kind of feeling their way into it because they too probably feel the, well, the absence true. That's true. and all of a sudden they get into the game and they're like oh uh, this is a little bit easier than we thought it was exactly be. definitely got that impression off uh, Paris Saint-Germain last night like the <laughs> the the atmosphere at Old Trafford I'll be keen to get uh, Andy's take on that when we get him up in a moment uh, the atmosphere at Old Trafford last night seemed uh, very interesting that you could certainly hear the Paris Saint-Germain fans chanting quite loudly and were they more vociferous than the Manchester United fans I dare say like it's very hard to tell from actually watching it on television and also it's easier to tell when uh, a team is winning away from home in a massive Champions League night so perhaps I'm kind of misjudging that but it certainly seemed to me that Manchester United fans were in softer voice than usual or is it a case where Old Trafford on Champions League nights is just kind of like the Emirates where it's like just a corporate event Oh no I don't, I don't think so I, 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 I'm, 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 I am being facetious there when I say that but like it, they certainly seemed a lot quieter than the PSG fans last night I, I think, is that not just the way uh, maybe it's the way ultras are and travelling fans are no like there's so many disparate people and also there's a nervousness when you're at home because you're, the burden of expectation is on you you're the, the team who's expected to make the running the one who's expected to be pulling off the, uh, the fancy passes and also the pressure game and all the completions and control 
Yeah, maybe. I don't know. We'll get to, we can ask Andy about it in a moment. I, I, it's just kind of a thought that perhaps they were a bit quieter than last night, but maybe I'm wrong. Um, like in terms of what, what else did we see last night, like the, the Di Maria uh, reaction from the crowd, like what actually happened? I, miss, I, I don't think they actually showed it on television with regards to Di Maria's celebration to the Manchester United fans. You're just reading about him... Um, yeah, well, throws a beer at him when he's drinking it. Yeah, but what happened before at the beer moment? Um, I think he said, did he say F off to the crowd or something after uh, the goal? The first goal? Uh, he he mounts back to them, I think. Yeah, and then the, the bottle throwing happens, then things get, then they have that corner when uh, it's, it is kind of like a wall of sound around Angel Di Maria. And I think the bottle happens then, and then he proceeds to pretend to sip the bottle, which I think was a pretty good comeback. Yeah, pretend. Uh, Andy Mitten is with us this morning. Andy, good morning to you. How are you doing? Good morning. So what's your assessment of what happened last night, really, in terms of um, Manchester United running into a bit of a buzzsaw? Well, they were out by a far better team with better tactics, with better players. United held their own in the first half, and I enjoyed that first half. It, it was so different to the Sevilla game a year ago when Manchester United was so negative, when the crowd was so flat. The crowd was anything but flat last night. The PSG fans were magnificent. They were so loud throughout. But I was watching more what was going on on the pitch, and I think the two substitutions didn't help United losing Lingard and Martial, because one of the replacements, uh, Alexis Sanchez, was just, he just had another really poor game. He's underwhelmed so much since he joined just over a year ago. And I spoke to Juan Mata as I was leaving the ground, and not as a journalist, and, and he just said the first goal did us. And seven minutes later, they scored an even better second goal. Angel Di Maria, of all people, someone who really underperformed when he played for Manchester United, put a ball in. But the movement which Kylian Mbappe the speed in which he moved between the two defenders to score, it just put that horrible feeling in the stomach of every Manchester United fan. And I'm going to Paris on March the 6th, and I'm just glad it's a nice city because I don't really think United are going through to the last eight. It was a reality check, it really was. And Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, he said as much after the game, he said that um, that was the level that Manchester United were hoping to, to aim for. And I get all that, but then I contrast that with the fact that United's wage bill is actually higher than PSG's, but there's still some way to go. But that PSG team, that's been building since 2011, and United haven't been building anything. United's transfer strategy has been very haphazard, and there's been a lot of failures and flops. And the last few months have been really, really good under Oli Gunnar Solskjaer. He's still got a huge amount of support, but he is also expected to get some results against bigger teams, if not PSG, then against Chelsea or against Liverpool in the upcoming matches. Yeah, it was interesting you went to tactics. Well, on the list of differences between the teams, you went tactics, then players. Tactics came first. What What would you do differently if you were Ole Gunnar Solskjaer knowing today what you know, what you didn't know yesterday? Well, I'd like a player of the calibre of Verratti in midfield or Marquinhos. I think, like Juventus dominated against Old Trafford in October, PSG did exactly the same. They soaked up United's pressure, some really nice balls in from... Ashley Young and they limited United to counter-attacks however they didn't, neither team in the first half had, had too many chances It was they were both going at each other but they were both defending really well and the two central defenders for PSG just like Juventus um, with Chileni and Bonucci um, 
Thiago Silva was just a, he was just a colossus. He was fantastic. And when you're playing against the best teams in the world, the top four or five teams in the world, they've got players like this. They've got partnerships like this that have taken time to form. And United just don't have that yet. They're just not at that level. And I looked at the PSG bench and I looked at the United bench and Juan Mata's a lovely guy and he's a very, very good footballer, but he just isn't of the class of some of the PSG lads. And they were missing two of their very best players. Cavani is lethal and Neymar is Neymar. He's one of the best free players in the world, but I'm pretty sure that Mbappe is, is on his way there. I watched him in Paris in October when he scored four goals in 13 minutes and I was just aghast at what I was seeing at how good he was. And last night he was rolling the ball in central midfield. At one point he pulled away from Victor Lindelof and the Swede, he could, he could just pull him back because he'd just been beaten. And Lindelof's a good player. He's been doing really well, but he's not of the class of Mbappe few people are but it was a bit of a shock for United fans because there's a huge amount of optimism around Old Trafford before the game everyone's really been enjoying the football since uh, since December but this was this was a reality check and in hindsight I, I, I'm not absolutely stunned by, by what I saw but sometimes the heart rolls ahead and, and, and going into the game I think a lot of United fans thought they'd win yeah, everything you said there is true, Andy, especially in terms of the personnel that PSG, we now know, clearly just have a, a better squad and a better starting eleven in particular than Manchester United. So how much blame can Ole Gunnar Solskjaer actually take for last night's result? Well, he's got to take some blame because he's the manager and if he loses the next 10 games, he'll get an awful lot of blame. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, t- Thomas Tuchel impressed me, actually. Uh, speaking after the game, he was just... Uh, flitting seamlessly between French and English, neither of which are, are his mother tongue. And he spoke about the tactics with a, a, an intensity, a sort of Guardiola-like uh, style, whereas um, Solskjaer talks more of, of the togetherness of the team. And he says all the right things without saying too much. The most blunt thing he said last night was that it actually comes down to Alexis Sanchez if Alexis Sanchez is going to improve. And that was as damning as you might find Solskjaer because Sanchez is better paid than any PSG player bar Neymar. And when you bring a player of, of, of that calibre on, he should be making a difference. In fact, he should be starting the game because he's such a good player and he's falling well short. And Pogba, I thought Pogba did all right. Solskjaer said he was United's best player. I wasn't too impressed by him, but... He did have two or three players on him all the time, which is a compliment to him. Uh, his sending off was stupid, and that makes a difficult job even harder now because you know, they've got to go to Paris, and Solskjaer said if we get a goal at half-time and we're leading, and I'm thinking, yeah, you know, he's got to say that. We've got to hope for that. And I would have probably said the same thing going to the game in, in Turin in, in November. United did actually win that. Can I see United doing the same thing in Paris? Not really, not really. I'd say there's a 20% chance uh, of it happening. What they've got to do now, you've got to finish in the top four, you've got to continue the good form, and most of the players have been doing really well, and maybe get a good run in the FA Cup. They've already beaten Arsenal away. If they can get a result against Chelsea, that will put the team and the mood back up where it's been. And they've got to be aiming and building towards becoming one of the top four or one eight, uh, top eight teams in Europe, because as we've seen the last few years, they're well short at that level. It's interesting what Solskjaer said, as you mentioned there, about Sanchez last night. What's your own feeling on that? Can he get back to that level? Because it certainly looks in the evidence of last night that he really is finished. He's not as fast as he was. and I, 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 I met him for the first time in 2011 when he, he joined Barcelona. I met him on the day that he signed because I was at the training ground to interview Iniesta. 
And I knew at the time that United wanted him. And I also knew that his second choice was United and City was his third choice. But he went to Barca. You can't blame him for that. And he was a good player at Barca. He had a very simple job, which was get the ball to Lionel Messi. If you have to beat a man and do that. And he was an honest player. He, was a, he trained very well. He worked very hard. And he's still doing that at Manchester United. But it's just not coming off for him. And he does look to be a player who is in decline. And it's frustrating to see. And sometimes players just don't work out at a club. Angel Di Maria is a perfect example. But Di Maria down tools by the February, by the March of his first season. He wasn't happy. His personal circumstances were not great. Sanchez, well, I mean, he split from his long-term partner. That's not been ideal for him either. And he's not hugely popular in the dressing room. But he's working really hard. He really is professional. He's, he's, I do still think there's life left in that footballer. But whether we're going to see it at Manchester United, the more this goes on, the more the poor form goes on, the more I doubt it. Andy, what, what uh, odds do you put it out at this point that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer will be the manager over the summer and into next year? If you really pushed me and said, will he be manager, yes or no, I'd say yes. But the decision has not been made yet and it doesn't need to be made yet. And if he loses against Chelsea and then against Liverpool, the doubts will really surface and people will say, well, where's his experience? But if I'm judging him after the 12 games so far with 10 wins, one draw and one defeat, he's done exceptionally well. He's hugely popular. He's lifted the, the mood around the club incredibly, not just among the players and the fans, but among the staff as well. He has been a ray of light after the misery of Jose Mourinho and I'd love him to become Manchester United manager but he'll be judged by results if United get beat 5-0 in Paris and get beat at home to Liverpool and get knocked out the FA Cup his bank credit will take some massive uh, knocks just as Jose Mourinho started a year ago when Mourinho went into that severe game fans were happy with him they were happy that he'd signed a new contract extension and when he lost that with a really poor performance in both legs from United that's when the doubt started so what United need is a plan they're looking for a director of football they're going to appoint a director of football that's all happening separately from whoever the next manager is going to be and I'd love to think that the club has got a longer term plan um, to use the vast resources that they've got because they've not been using them to, to, to the the best of their ability in recent years. United have been massively underperforming. Yeah, makes sense to uh, put a proper plan in place. Andy, great to have you with us this morning. Thanks a million. Take care. Bye-bye. Andy Mitten there, the editor of United We Stand. Uh, always with the inside track. So he says the decision hasn't been made just yet, which would make sense. And um, that director of football role, there's been a lot of big names linked with that. Um, Van der Sar probably makes the most obvious sense um, in terms of the names that are linked to being chief executive of... Ajax, is it much better to be the um, director of football at Manchester United? It's a bigger job, director of football. Yeah, It certainly is. He looks a lot more mortal, doesn't he? All Ollie. of a sudden. He looks exactly the same, but he looks a lot more mortal. All of a sudden. Which is really unfair, but it's just the truth. He just kind of felt like the baby face thing was such a positive over the last couple of weeks. Now and like, now it's like such oh, you look like a such you, such you naive little boy. Ah. Wow, a bit harsh. Uh, okay, so we'll uh, talk a bit more about that a little bit later on and we'll reflect some of your comments that are streaming through on our YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash off the ball. A reminder as well this morning that if you want to go about your business and just listen to us like a radio show, you can get on to offtheball.com, click listen live in the top right-hand corner when the show is on and uh, you can minimize us and check your email and uh, go on Facebook or Snapchat or Twitter or whatever it is that you want to do. Uh, we don't mind. You can um, keep us on in the background there and we will be your perfect breakfast accompaniment now we're going to talk to uh, James Collin 
about the uh, French rugby situation in a moment. Here's Alan Quinlan's thoughts from earlier on this week on OTBM about uh, the rabble that France have become. Have a look. They're shocking and it's really disturbing to see it because I tell you, France in the first half against Wales last, uh, the opening game of the Six Nations, I went, whoa, they're back. This is what we all want to see. Even I watched that game. I, I watched the game. They were brilliant in the first I, half. I couldn't believe the turnaround in that second half of the match. It was unreal. It was shocking. And, um, you know, people, I, I grew up in the, uh, watching France in the 80s where they won probably in a 10 or 11 year period, eight, seven or eight championships. And they're just some iconic players and incredibly exciting players. And, then you start playing against them and you have this, they have this aura and you're kind of like so fearful and then you beat them for the first time and you think they're, they're human and they're normal and then, you know, with, the, with European Cups and stuff like that, when we regularly started to beat French teams, you, you, you kind of expose their vulnerability and weaknesses and maybe their lack of technique and accuracy around certain areas because they always had this flamboyant way of playing the game but... Rugby has changed so much nowadays. If you're inaccurate um, at the breakdown, you're not organising the fence, you don't have an incredibly uh, good attitude. When I say good attitude, to, to not, not just what happens on the field, but your conditioning, your fitness, your detail. It's kind of like going to complete science, the game, you know, and they're just not in great shape, the players. They're not, they just don't seem to be fit enough. Yeah, physically or emotionally, they're not in great shape after uh, back-to-back defeats at the start of the Six Nations. James Collin, good morning to you. How are you doing? Good morning, lads. How are you doing? You're the uh, academy coach in Poe, so you've got a sense at least of what the uh, quality of rugby is like in France from French players. Are they are the players just not there, or is this a, a, like a deeper structural organisational issue? I think it might be a combination of the two, to be honest with you. Um, the federation are trying to organise things kind of half-heartedly behind the scene. You know, they're changing the ages of uh, the Esport system is like our A competition at home. They want to change the age of that, bring in an under-18 and under-20 competition. Um, and they send that notification to all the clubs. And then all of a sudden, oh, we haven't got the money for that. And it's pulled out from, the rug is pulled from underneath us. I know Simon was in uh, Paris yesterday around the 7th. All the managers of the, the top 14 were in in Marcosi yesterday we talk about the sevens competition about being able to take players for the sevens competition but the problem is is that at home the federation control the players like the RFU have control over who plays and when play when they play here in France the lads are a week off this week they could be back playing at the weekend you know so it's a combination of the two to be honest with you when you watch them play at the moment I have no idea what their system of attack is <laughs> uh, and to be honest their, their defence <laughs> leaves a lot to be desired at the moment as well because the Wales game seemed to suggest that there was I don't know that, that first half against Wales it was like okay there's a plan there's uh, uh, some, some kind of an identity and it looked like the, there was kind of a, a, a not a perfect meld but at least a, a throwback sense of okay this is how yeah. we can do things and this is the talent that we have the marriage yeah. of those two was going to work well and away we go but yeah. it fell apart it's a, there's a fragility there like one error and they missed one tackle uh, I think it was Williams went through scored and you could see that was the end of the match nearly they, they, they just stopped trying they missed the tackles all over the place guys tried to win the game on their own and for me that's just a sign that there isn't a, a real 
leadership in, in place. Um, I know from from being up in Marcos, these fella, fellas seem to just walk into to meetings a bit late. And when you miss the, those details, the details of the international level, then you're going to suffer. And that's what's happening. They're missing small detail, details in uh, everything they do. And then if you do that, the international rugby, you're going to be punished big time. I mean, it, to, to think that their their back line was made up of Fico, who's been playing centre all year for San Francisco, he's on the wing. Uge, I've never seen him play full-back and he's playing full-back. I mean, in all the players and all the clubs in top 14, there isn't a, a solid full-back that can play week in, week out with them. I mean, Bastro, okay, I, I think that maybe it was to do with two Aggie playing for England that they wanted somebody big in the centre. But like without the ball, Bastro isn't doing a whole lot at the moment. Like so, I just I can't see what they're they're thinking. I can't see if there's a real plan in place. There seems to be no cohesion in what their their team selection and what they're doing in the game as well. You know, so it's 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 a bit mind-boggling at the moment, to be honest. It seems like that there's always been a stereotype, certainly over the last few years, uh, about French rugby and about perhaps a, a lack of organisation uh, at club level and at national level. And you always kind of think, oh, these stereotypes are actually just being hammed up a little bit. But it sounds from what you're talking about there that there's actually a good bit of truth in all of this. Uh, the, the, at club level, is very organised because obviously the professional set, uh, setups which uh Big budgets, um, they're looked after well. The lads are looked after. There's nutritionists in place. There's proper SSC in place. The problem is, is that once you go to the federation level, that they only have these guys for six weeks. And when you miss a, the detail at, at the high level, then you're going to suffer. And that's what's happening. I, I mean, you look at all the top nations. They have the players. They, they're in control of... They have a nutritionist in place. They're following a proper nutritional plan. Uh, uh, the French team don't have a nutritionist. Um, that's left down to the club. So, I mean, when you're missing the de- detail behind the scenes, then they're going to miss the detail on the pitch, and that's that's clear. I mean, Julian Bonnier is a fantastic, was a fantastic player. He's never coached anybody. He's their lineup coach. You know, Sebastian Bruno has played, uh, finished two years. He's in as their scrum coach. I mean, the, when you look at the uh, at the weekend, no lineup, no scrum. No ball. Um, the defence is a shambles. I mean, it's there's a lot of questions to be asked at the moment because the players. I know from watching the players week in week out, the players are capable of so much more. It's just whether they actually have an. Uh, uh, in a, they're in an environment where they actually want to work for each other because it doesn't look like that at the moment. Yeah, you can see from the table there. Obviously, that it's um, it's looking pretty grim for France at the moment. Uh, it's looking pretty good for England obviously riding high with uh, two bonus point wins those bonus points are going to end up being important at the end Wales with uh, two wins and they'll be very disappointed that they didn't get the bonus point victory the last time so England with a two point lead at the top uh, Ireland <coughs> you know fourth on uh, four points France have that uh, single losing bonus point from the first game and then obviously the Italians I mean if you're going to be looking at that France game and thinking they have a chance of winning it you mentioned um, Julian Bonner there and obviously um, Jacques Brunel was appointed amidst much fanfare kind of suggestion that he would be safe given that he has very close links with Bernard Laporte almost almost irrespective of what happens but Laporte's not going to watch this France team capitulate game after game after game over the course of the Six Nations and maybe even lose to, to Italy and not take action before a World Cup surely no I think he'll leave him to the World Cup I think the World Cup is what the, the plan is I think the, the, there won't be a change in the coaching setup until the World Cup 
maybe at that stage they'll realize, okay, we host the World Cup in four years and then we're going to put a new coaching team in place, start off with a new team. A lot of the younger 20, under 20s will probably get a go. Um, like Intermac gets the start against Wales and then he's taken out of the team against England. I think they need to give these guys a, a chance. You know, you have Jordan Joseph playing in the under 20 team who'll probably come into the, the national team to replace Pickamall um, after the World Cup and they'll put a plan in place for the next four years. Otherwise, it'll just be the same thing. It's all results-based and it'll be one one year after another. You'll have a different team match, match after match and um, it's kind of hard for them going into hosting a World Cup and, and not having a plan for the next four years in place. I, I can't see that happening. Has there been a change in attitude towards the national view of the France national team over the, the past couple of years, James? Because, like, say, if you look at rugby in Ireland over the past few years, I think there's more people watching the Irish national team or feel associated with the Irish national team due to success. Uh, and I presume in France, when you look at what they've done on a sporting context over the past couple of years in terms of uh, becoming one of the world beaters in football, winning the World Cup last year, that there's more of a support for them at the moment. Is that taking from the rugby team? And I guess the rugby performances, is that taking away from the support of the, the national rugby team? I don't think so. I think that the days out in Paris are, are a big thing here, you know, mm. regardless of um, of what your club is, you know, that there's a kind of history of everyone makes the trip to Paris or they go to Marseille to see them in Marseille. It, there still is that, that, that big support for the national team. The problem is, is that the players aren't really backing it up or whether the coach or the federation aren't backing it up at the moment. But I don't think they'll ever lose that, that, that national, you know, the national support, the national pride. Obviously, the top 14 is on week in, week out on the, on the telly. So the Canal Plus are, are following everything. So that there, there's still a, a great appetite for rugby, but the, the issue is just results. And it, when it comes down to it, it'll be money based as well. If they're not making, if they're not filling stadiums, if they're not, uh, if they're not having good results, then, you know, partners behind will go, well, you you know, we'd rather follow a, a top 14 club than following the French team, you know? Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's a, like a high wire act, really, that the French national team needs to really improve very quickly or else that battle's going to be completely lost and it's almost impossible to see it coming back. No, it'll be very difficult. If you lose that, then it'll be gone because they'll tie into three, four, five-year contracts with big clubs like San Francisco or, or racing. Partners will know that they're going to be on the telly every week. They'll know they're going to be followed on, on Twitter, on Instagram, on everything. So when players taking photos of themselves in the in the in change rooms after the game with the sponsor there, that, that's what they're looking for. They're looking for that exposure. So if they do lose that battle, it'll be very, very difficult to get it back at that stage. Is it nailed on that the next French coach after this is going to be the guys at Racing is that just like accepted as truth or are there loads of different candidates that we're kind of maybe a bit unaware of I don't think so I think Pierre Mignoni and Leon has done a fantastic job Um, very very organised very structured Uh, I think somebody like that or the lads in uh, Claremont as well have been have spoken about um, but the thing is you just don't know like uh, Laporte might get somebody in his head I think we need them and uh, (laughs) <laughs> and then he goes for it and that's it you know but uh, I honestly if I was I know a good outside bet for me would be Pierre Mignoni to give him four years and say structure everything here get all the young lads playing get all our, our we're going to lose a couple of games in Six Nations we don't mind we're going to go for a four year plan and we're going to be ready for the World Cup I think that it'd be somebody like that who'd be very structured and knows his own head and will go for it like that I think that's what they need and uh, hopefully that's what they'll go for somebody of that that, that ilk How are things going to Poe for you? Yeah, we're, we're you know the the professional team. We're we're 
one last uh, a couple of weeks ago against Perpignan uh, big block of games coming up now with, with Toulon cast here at home and then uh, Agen at home again so if we can win the three of those we'll be in a good, good spot and the Espar team are, are top of the league so it's, it's going well it's going well and there's plenty of talent there that's the other thing like this kind of there is there is there is there is the, the, like the, the young fellas coming through with three or four fellas uh, on a weekly basis, we have 15 academy lads play, training with the pros, and then you have three or four lads who are in the team regularly. So it's it's good. It's good. We have to keep plenty of work to do, though. <laughs> We're just getting ready to go on the pitch now ourselves. Yeah, well, we let you go train, James. Thanks a million for taking the call this morning. Cheers. No no problem. Thanks again. Let's see so, you. James Colin there, uh, about to go training with the Espoirs at uh, Poe. Very good with his time this morning to explain how the hell it happened in France that they became a laughing stock of the Six Nations I'm glad we're not the laughing stock I'm glad they're the laughing stock how did it happen they were just very French very French for decades though yeah it's been a lot of uh, it'll be grand and it isn't no that's what that's what made us kind of begrudge them previously it's like it's also effortless for them they're so bloody good and then suddenly the, the effortlessness was actually real and that led to kind of a, a lack of results in the pitch like Quinny on Monday was almost leaning towards comparing them to Italy or saying that Italy are almost a, a bigger threat than France at this stage which is a, a really grim place to be in from a French rugby perspective Where's that game this year? Where do they play each other? Do you know? It was in Marseille last year wasn't it? That was the game in the Velodrome? Oh was it? Yeah so it's Italy, France and the Stadio Olimpico uh, on, on Paddy's weekends the last weekend um, the weather is generally pretty good by the time that rolls around Stadio Olimpico though is too big isn't it? That's where Lazio play yeah, well, what do you mean it's too big as in... They used to play their games, um, that other little small stadium, which is a brilliant place to go and watch rugby, because it's small and it's tight, and obviously your fans are as many, as plentiful as theirs. Um, and you could walk back into one of the big squares and eat Italian food and hang out. It's nice. But we can do that around the Olympic Stadium anyway. Like, if anybody's going to, to Italy to watch Six Nations, I'm certainly not feeling sorry for them that they've got to go to the Olympic Stadium instead of whatever the alternative used ah, to be. It was, uh, it, was, it was old and class and cool. The Olympic Stadium... Uh, oh, no, hang on. Am I right? They've been uh, using the Olympic Stadium for a while now. Yeah, that's 72,000 capacity, so... Not quite the... Uh, what, was it, what was the old stadium called? You caught me out here. You know, there's, a, there's your crappy quiz question this week to see if any of, your, uh, any of the lads are actually paying attention. No, I'm sure, is the answer. Uh, all right, so you can follow um, The Adventures of James Colin on Twitter, at Corkman in Poe, which is uh, the best Twitter handle that we've seen in a long time. So, uh, yeah, so we'll hit follow back on that from the AM account, and uh, away you go. Right, so um, we have been talking about uh, the situation with uh, Manchester United. That's obviously the main uh, stuff in the story, uh, sorry, in the story in the uh, newspaper as well. We heard from Andy Mitten a little bit earlier on. He talked about that. Uh, first goal that Man United conceded last night. Here's Keith Andrews speaking on Virgin Media about Paul Pogba being to blame. Have a look. The manager has no chance when two of your players are switching off. Just yeah. do what they did for that corner Just kick. Just quickly, Tommy, the reason Pogba is in that position is because he doesn't trust him to mark somebody. And now he can't even be trusted really to do a zonal position work because he even gets attracted yeah. to the bodies in front of him. He's in the middle of the six-yard post to cover that specific area in case anything goes wrong. Which so he's just been did. told you don't actually have to mark anybody, you just... Yeah, we see a lot with strikers, don't we? Drogba yeah. did it, for instance. He's good in the air. Don't give him the, the, the responsibility of marking a player. Just go and head it. Go and attack that area. But and couldn't and, even and do judge that. the flight of the ball because he's took a yard for no reason and he's got caught under it, but he's got caught under it because he's square on. If, he, if, he's, if he's shaped where he can go one way or Either the other, way. he just goes back half a yard and heads <laughs> it out. Too harsh on Pogba? A little bit. 
little bit harsh, isn't it? it it's, uh, is there going to be a lot of revisionism done over Manchester United on the back of last night? Uh, there obviously will be, and whether or not it's correct is the question. Like may, Keith would obviously have a better understanding than I would of Paul Pogba as a man-marker, but I do think that the outstanding players that they were up against last night is uh, is a fairly sizable factor in the scoreline. Except that if you're conceding from set pieces... Yeah, that was a disaster. Like, you know, OK, in fairness, the best teams in the world should be really good at set pieces, so you should need to be on your game completely. But it wasn't, um, it wasn't like an amazing... There wasn't a load of subterfuge in it. It was a fairly straightforward routine. Oh, thanks very much. There was opportunism there as well, though. Like Matic and De Gea not properly communicating with one another. I'm pretty sure Matic thought that De Gea was going to come for the ball. He never did. But if you think that and you're not communicating with your goalkeeper, then it's kind of your fault as well. Yeah, I mean, that's practice, isn't it? Like, it's not like Matic is just in the team. Mm. He's been in the team the whole time. Like, I was actually limbering up for a glorification of the Manny Matic chat at one point last night. Yeah. Because he started the game so well. Yeah, well, we were, we were hinting at that yesterday, and then... You were hinting, sorry, you were hinting at that. Just to clarify, you were hinting at Daniel that Harris yesterday. Daniel Harris was like, no, 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 no. Yeah. But, uh, well, they were so good against Fulham, you know, mighty Fulham. They slayed, <laughs> they slayed the beast. Yeah, like, the, the, the run of fixtures that Manchester United have had has obviously been quite nice, but I, I don't think it's fair to say all, all the great work of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer's uh, era so far has been undone because of last night. I think his stock is very, very high. I agree with Handy that he's still probably the front-runner. The next couple of weeks are obviously going to be vital. We always knew that the month of February and the start of March was going to be the decision yeah, period and for Yeah, here's for the thing. This, 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 exact, this exact thing happened to Man United all the time under Alex Ferguson until they had their like super teams who could actually dig out those results. And they had two of those super teams over a 20-year period, and that was it. That was, well, it was a third team, really. It was three separate eras where... Does the team who loses the Champions League final also qualify? That's what they do, yeah. Is that different to... No, that's the same team who wins it, really, so... Well, yeah, it's the same team, yeah. But the thing is, if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer gets a job, he will also get humbled next season. Every team gets humbled, except for the very, very best, every single season. Like, Manchester City got humbled a couple of times over Christmas. Liverpool getting beaten by Manchester City after that. Not a humbling, but there are defeats. Things happen. This is a real test now for Solskjaer from a situational point of view, coming back from a defeat. The question is, how artificial was the Manchester United confidence over the last couple of weeks? Was it really a new manager balance? Was it just harmony in the squad that helped them overperform perhaps I was of the belief that they weren't actually overperforming over the past few weeks that they just found their actual level of performance and last night that they underperform well if you look at a goalkeeper and, uh, and uh, an outfielder not communicating on a corner I think that's a bit of a lapse in concentration which probably feeds into the idea of an underperformance that some Manchester United fans this morning would be thinking should Kempembe have been sent off? I think so and when a player gets booked I think 10 so. minutes in I you know it, aren't you supposed to have the nouse to just target and tackle that player and make sure that he's the one who responds and ends up lashing out and isn't that the well, they kind of did but the referee that pulled down on who was the pulled down on Rashford wasn't it uh, at the start of the second half for me that was a free kick and a yellow card for sure like when you talk about targeting individual players like what PSG did to Ashley Young last night was just textbook targeting and his position was, uh, would have to be in threat yeah but uh, he brought a little bit of that himself to you know Shoulder charging somebody a la GAA. Right, what I mean is targeting the player, the weak link in the team, and just going after the, yeah, the yeah, left yeah. But it, after the booking happens, is like cheating to get him sent off, which is, you know, what, like... You don't think... Jose Mourinho had been in charge last night, and everything had been going well, and Kempembe is booked 11 minutes in. Everybody would have been like, oh, shot right beside him. Mm. A lot of bad acting going on, trying to get him sent off. Right, let's bring it to... 
So you didn't think it was a second yellow card when he like... It was, style. Like, it was, it was Soccer's version of throwing somebody off the Hell in a, hell in a Cell. I don't know, I think you're right. I mean, it was shoulder to shoulder, right? Yeah, no, it wasn't yellow. Uh, okay, so there's the back page of the Irish Independent for you this morning. $25,000 packages see Mayo poise for New York windfall. Let's see what the response is like to this. So, uh, the Mayo GA International Supporters Foundation Black Tie Gala will take place in the world-renowned Cipriani Hotel on Broadway on the 3rd of May. This is... Um, Basically, you could not buy this type of advertising, but Michael Burney has a great story here. Um, and obviously, Mayo are heading over to play New York in the first round of the Connacht Football Championship. Um, there is a separate event happening uh, with David Brady and uh, Team OTB the night after this, but uh, we'll tell you more about that uh, in the future. So this one, though, 25 grand... You can be um, the Ruby sponsor and Emerald sponsorships are available at a whopping cost of twenty five and ten grand respectively, with perks such as VIP seating alongside a hope high profile player, ex player obviously. And that's the team we're gonna come out to this. I mean that would be mad, wouldn't it? <laughs> the full team out it's the Friday night, so why not, you know? The game's on a Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. Or is it on, is it on a Sunday or is it it's Saturday? U- it's usually the Sunday evening, isn't it? Is it? Usually. I don't know. Like that would uh, I guess two day recovery. Like James Horan would be mad to allow that to happen given his very first championship game as Mayo boss was almost getting beaten in London yeah like he knows the perils of these trips he knows what New York have done in, in terms of causing a little bit of a scare the last two years consecutively there's no chance he lets his Mayo players go to that in the you get a signed team jersey special VIP gifts for guests and entry to the event after party which Where, I mean, what is the after be, party? it's going to be good <laughs> this is like Mayo taking over the whole of New York it's like the Muppets got in New York it's like taking over well, like, uh, what's the what's the famous Irish pub in uh, Times Square? There are many. There are many. It's like, just the after party is just an Irish like pub in Times Square. Pubs in in uh, New York. So Mayo obviously were the third biggest spenders in 2017 behind Cork and Dublin with 1.5 million spent on team preparation. Obviously, not that much spent on the Mayo hurlers, as we know. So, um, yeah, they're expected to raise an absolute fortune. I think there's like one key former. Um, so there's one key American who's an Irish American whose ma left from Mayo in like, you know, what, when would that have been, like the 30s or 40s? And he's the key driver behind organising this. So, But when the GPA do this, it's a scandal. It's an outrage. They're taking money off the uh, local GAA board. But Kerry did this. Mm-hmm. They raised an absolute fortune. Chicago? Well, they did it in New York as well. But they made a big wedge in Chicago. Like how much? Uh, I actually I don't want to get my fingers mixed up okay, here, okay. but there was the, the New York one I heard was like helped to pay for the entire team preparation the center of excellence that was like involved in so um, county, counties are doing this and there's no no comment from the New York County Board saying no you can't do it because remember all of the teams in New York are bankrolled to a massive amount like there's a, <coughs> roughly a quarter of a million to put a team in the championship effectively in New York is what the, the uh, lowest amount that you'll be spending on preparations would be. Um, so anyway, New York, America, rich, Mayo, not rich, Mayo gone over to take some of the money. I have no problem with that. Do you? No. Uh, FAI expect All-Ireland Clash to survive launch fiasco. We haven't talked about this yet. The FAI expect a new All-Ireland Clash between the champions of the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland to go ahead, even though the announcement caught clubs on both sides of the border by surprise. So, Fran Gavin mentioned it yesterday at the League of Ireland uh, season launch, and then the IFA came out and said, well, that hasn't been agreed yet, so, you know, until everything is agreed, nothing is agreed, I believe, is uh, how talks between 
bodies north and south generally goes. Uh, United's bubble burst and Bappe stars and Pogba sent off in bruising first defeat for Solskjaer. The red card for Pogba is really annoying because like there's no chance now. Not that there was, but Akira Marion is coming back is the uh, rugby story in the back of the Times today. And cricketers hit by County Van Nick Royal has this story that um, the England Wales Cricket Board could be acting in breach of UK employment law by classing Northern Ireland-born Ireland internationals as overseas players in English domestic cricket from next season. So the sports lawyers are on the case, which I think would probably be good for uh, Irish cricket to have more players playing county cricket in England and classified as uh, non-overseas players. Defiant Dortmund can hold firm at Wembley, so that's a preview of tonight's game. We're back. Racing makes a welcome return to Britain today. Cheltenham is just around the corner. It's time to banish those flu blues. The uh, racing poster on board with the cheerleading this morning. Angel torments the Red Devils. Angel torments Red Devils. So Di Maria shows bottle as PSG outclass United. Great ad for Heineken um, as he's pretending to sip. So uh, Tommy said earlier the order of events was gets abused, take corner, goal is scored, bottle thrown. (laughs) Thanks very much. And then FU. All oh, right, God, I got that mixed up. I thought uh, it was FU before bottle. I mean, you might be right. Uh, Don Lennon also writing about France this morning uh, in the paper, and uh, Kieran Shannon has a bit of a love letter tribute to um, the coaching maverick John Morrison, who passed away. I think it was yesterday. A lot of um, uh, love and GA circles for the late great John Morrison. No Olays for Ole as sunshine turns back into grey skies because it's Manchester it's always raining right and then United's Paris mismatch uh, we've already spoken about and then there's match previews and also uh, about stories about Gordon Banks uh, Gordon Darcy in his piece today is uh, talking about France as well and then the Irish Times have the news that Gary Ringrose should also be fit in time to return for the Italy game so it'll be interesting to see what the selection dilemmas or otherwise are for that is Henshaw going to be back for that what's the story about Robbie Henshaw's injury I don't know like the if everybody's back fit there is still questions about what he goes with does he go back experimenting again does he go back with what he feels to be his best midfield uh, there's plenty of questions and I'm sure they'll come to fruition if, if Enjoy is back fully fixed it looks like as you said Guy Ringrose will be uh, just a couple of the other back pages this morning the back page of the Irish Daily Mail goes with Reality Bites Pogba sees red as PSG inflict a first defeat on Ole and also speaking yesterday Paddy Cullen says Croker gives Dubs advantage which seems like a fairly mediocre thing to say, except for nobody actually really comes out and says that the Dubs get an advantage from playing in Croke Park, except for people who've got, who hold a deeply ingrained anti-Dublin bias. So uh, let's just say what, see what Paddy Cullen says. He says, there is a definite advantage in Croker, no doubt about it. Everybody knows it. The dogs in the street know it. But he forgot to say, you know, that uh, certain Dublin fans don't know it. Uh, back page of the Herald is Paris Rune, Ole's run. Unbeaten record ends as 10 Man United crushed by PSG. And you've also got that FAI story, jumping the gun on cup plan. Uh, the back page of the Sun is disaster. Angle bottled as Pogba sees red in United meltdown. And you've also got Chelsea, Blues eyes Zidane as Sarri loses backing. So if you look at this on the back page, if you're considering you know, picking up a paper, if you just have a look at the, the cliff notes, it says talks have advanced with regards to Zinedine Zidane. So they're actually speaking to Zinedine Zidane. And then you actually open the newspaper and you read uh, a little bit more. more uh, and talks have advanced over, talks have advanced this week 
over when they should make their move. So there has been no move made. There are no talks with uh, Zinedine Zidane. So there, don't worry about that story for the time being. They're interested in Zinedine Zidane uh, at the moment, as every club who looks to be getting rid of a manager should be. Uh, back page of the mirror is disaster as well. Brutal reality check for Ole as United flop. Angel masterminds shock at Old Trafford. And then finally, the Irish Daily Star is red and buried. Solskjaer's United outclassed by PSG. But most importantly this morning, the big GA stories on the front of the Irish Daily Star. GA hero saves burning woman at mass. All-Ireland star puts out fire with bare hands. Not sure if you've seen this story. I saw a bit of it. Uh, uh, it's, the, I mean, there's great detail in the Irish Daily Star this morning. What type of candle was it? Well, let, let me explain to you. So D- Donald Reid, an All-Ireland winner with Donegal in 1992, who was also part of the backroom team in 2012, uh, was at his local church, St. Patrick's Church in Killygordon County, Donegal. It, there was a healing mass basically on Monday morning so he was about four rows behind an elderly woman when he noticed a small light coming from the hood of the woman's coat Donald soon realised that the woman's coat was on fire after she had brushed up against a holy candle what type a of candle? few seconds later, earlier a holy candle what type of candle is that? Uh, I presume it's a how is it holy? what's it? well blessed of course you, oh, put, that, you, put in your, you put in your 20 cent and then it's holy you give it money and it, it's blessed have you, not, it's a holy candle. have you never lit, lit in a candle Listen, have you never lit a candle for anybody? <laughs> did you never lit in a candle yourself? no no, 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 no. Scared of frightening the woman by shouting, Donald was left with a dilemma. <laughs> he rushed to the woman and began to pat her coat down in a bit that fanned down the flames as the woman's coat began to ignite. When he managed to put out the fire with his bare hands, Mr. Reed then took the woman's coat off. I just noticed the light was on the woman's coat and realised it was actually on fire. It was soon getting worse, he said. Mr. Reed was left with burns to his hands from the flames, but said he was okay afterwards. Hero of the week, Donald Reed. Saving lives. Winning all Ireland and saving lives. It's the life I want to lead. Yeah, well, I mean, he's got the stigmata now, does he? With the burns on his hands. Well, that's true, and they'll, they'll start appearing in, in other places now as well. It's, that's that's the, the price to pay when a holy candle tries to get somebody. Who well knew, done to Donald Reed. Who knew going to Mass was such a dangerous thing? Well, I think we all knew. All right. Uh, England, oh, there's one other thing, sorry. Uh, can you pass me the Irish Independence? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, can I? Yes, I Just, can. Sorry, so that, that was uh, our Hero of the Week. Shade of the Week is being thrown this week from Martin Brehney in uh, The Irish Independence. So, uh, he talks about conjecture and rumour, as uh, brought up uh, by Jim Gavin uh, on Saturday. So, obviously, uh, Jim Gavin said, Why journalists are how they report on conjecture or rumour? That's your profession, not mine, so I can't comment on that. Martin Brehney, writing in The Irish Independent this morning, says... As for conjecture and rumour, it can be found just about anywhere. Indeed, the media have to deal regularly with a version that emanates from the Dublin camp itself. How often have teams been announced on Friday night or Saturday morning, yet by Sunday changes are made? It reduces the announcements to the status of conjecture and rumour as far as the public are concerned. Strangely enough, Dublin don't make any issue about that. But then again, they wouldn't, would they, given that they themselves are behind it? There you go. Let's move on. England's legendary goalkeeper Gordon Banks passed away yesterday morning at the age of 81. David Priest joined the football show last night and gave us an excellent technical breakdown of that iconic Gordon Banks save against Pelé. Even in, the, in the, the first instance when the cross is coming from Jairzinho, he's got tossed out at his near post area, so that's where he's placed. Uh, and once the ball goes beyond him, now he's got a little bit of a chance to, to look up and, and recognise uh, what's happening in front of him. And he makes up a lot of ground going across his goal and the one thing that stands out for me is the, the fact that he doesn't just go with his momentum. It could be easy just to gamble and see whether and think that the ball's going to go down to his right and use the, the, the momentum that his pace has built up to, to cheat almost and gamble. But he, he doesn't do that. If you just look at the footage, he just pauses slightly 
as Pele is about to head the ball, so it gives them the best chance of, of saving uh, a ball that's going in any direction. Mm. That brief pause, and then he's got to try and get himself going again, and uh, as the ball goes down to his right, the ball's just behind him, and, and that's the, suppose the, the crucial part of the save. It's, it's technically imperfect, so as a goalkeeper, you always get taught to, to dive forward towards the ball. Now the ball's already behind him. Yeah. yeah. He's lucky in a way that the ball, uh, the Pelé has been able to generate a lot of pace on the ball and the fact that there's a lot of pace on the ball helps him because he's just got to get some sort of forward motion with his hand towards the ball and use the pace that's already on the ball to, to lift it up over the bar. Of course, he's, in that moment in time, he's just trying to save the ball. He's not thinking about all this as he goes on. It, it's, it happens too quickly for him to, mm. to really uh, to take all this in, but... It's two hours of, uh, of training and preparation. Uh, that's when your, your instincts take over. It teaches your instincts to take over. Yeah, goalkeeping guru David Priest given his blow-by-blow um, blow breakdown of the Gordon Banks on Pelé save. Uh, also doing his digging on uh, Gordon Banks and his um, career in Dublin was uh, Darren yesterday. What did you find out? Yeah, it's some great stories, Jer. Um, I mean, he made so many appearances for Stoke, for Leicester, 300 for Leicester, 200 for Stoke. But the one appearance for Pats is the one that really got uh, Irish football fans talking yesterday. It came in 1977. What happened was um, their regular keeper, Mick O'Brien, was, was out injured. They didn't have him available for the game. So the manager at the time was a guy called Barry Bridges, who used to play for Chelsea. He went over to England in search of a goalkeeper, trying to find someone for this game, coming up with uh, Shamrock Rovers. He was unsuccessful. He was heading back to Dublin, having not found one of his mates to play and he bumped into Banks who was at the time semi-retired he was living over in Florida and he was travelling to and from so he basically Banks volunteered himself upon hearing the plight and he kind of had a quip Bridges saying well sure Gordon you're 40 and you've one eye and he goes I can see the ball just as well with one eye as I can with two so he agreed to play there was a fee of £500 agreed Wow. he came over that was huge money at the time yeah. I mean the gate takings for that night were 2200 Right. so he got nearly a quarter of the gate just to play the game and he wasn't a spectator um Anyone who was at the game on social media seemed to remember that his save from Eamon Dunphy's volley is just as good as his Pele save. That was the, uh, the general consensus among anyone that saw it yesterday. There was a piece, I didn't realise it was Gilesy's uh, Samrock Rovers. Yeah, he was the player manager and it was the first game that they had lost since he became the player manager. It was his first setback. And uh, there was no goal, was there? Uh, the first goal, yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Dan in the Irish Independent this morning was writing about the fact that uh, Banks' handlers had to kind of, you know, tell him to look elsewhere when they were driving past Richmond Park initially so that oh, he wouldn't yeah. know that that was the venue. The Pat's website had an absolutely brilliant kind of oral history with uh, Barry Bridges, who at the time was explaining how it all came about. And he mentions they were walking by in Shakur, Banks slept in a spare bedroom, and they were going by Richmond Park and they decided, you know what, I'm not going to mention to him that this is the, the ground. I'm just going to keep it quiet. We'll say nothing. And hopefully he won't notice the next morning when we get there in the brightness. But Banks did notice it. And uh, he remembers it as, uh, as this. When Banks actually spotted, that's the place that we were there yesterday. We walked into the ground and you had to walk through a bloody great iron gate to get into the stand and the dressing rooms. And we walked through and he looked at me. This is Banks and said, you bastard, what have you done? <laughs> From that moment on, though, he was different class. He treated the whole thing as if he was playing for England. He walked in and he shook everybody's hand and made everybody happy. He told them, the 18-yard box is mine, even if I've only got one eye. <laughs> it wasn't a good save, it was a great save. I can vividly remember the second best stop that World Cup winning goalkeeper Gun Banks ever pulled off. <laughs> John Giles passed to Ray Tracy, flicked it onto me as the ball dropped in front of me. 25 yards from goal, I took aim with my left foot, and with that, it was as though someone had hit the slow mo button. 
<laughs> That's it. The eyewitness account of history. Um, the eyewitness account, this, the one from Barry Bridges on the Pats website is brilliant. We've kind of condensed the information into a solid chunk of 700 words where it's easier to read. It's on the website offtheball.com. It's a great story. It's fascinating. It's well worth reading. And it's just so many characters of the football world all aligning. It's a wonderful piece of history. Um, anyone know mountaineering slang? Anyone go to mountaineering slam, slang? Why do you climb a mountain? To get to the top. Because it's there? Yes! <laughs> the easiest, uh, Christmas, like it's Christmas cracker joke material, although I've never actually seen it in a Christmas cracker. No, it's um, somebody famous. George some- Mallory. Oh yeah, it's not actually a joke, it. it's actually a, a, an inspirational phrase, isn't it? He climbed up to the top of the mountain and was asked, why do you climb it? Because it's there. And that's what Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has basically done. He's channeled his inner George Mallory because he says, even though Manchester United have a mountain to climb in the Champions League, they would be happy to climb it. The Red Devils teetering on the brink of elimination after losing the home leg of their last 16 tie 2-0 to further compound their misery Paul Pogba was sent off the caretaker United boss feels Pogba's red was harsh but he remains positive that they can upset the odds and climb the mountain you can see that we've not played games at this level for a while and uh, we'll have to learn from this uh, experience because it was a it was a, one of these experiences that you uh, you can go either way. It's not going to be a season-defining one for us. It's, it has to be one that we're going to learn from. And of course, Paul Popa misses the return as well, which is another play. Yeah, it is. He's trying to get his body across, and uh, Alves is clever enough to to uh, to put his foot in there so he hits him. So from the side, I know I know Paul wants to just shield the ball, then he's unlucky and hits uh, hits him on the knee. So where does this leave the tie? You've got a mountain to climb in Paris now. Yeah, but mountains are there to be climbed, aren't they? Because uh, you can't uh, lay down and say this is over. Uh, we're going to have to go down there, believe in ourselves, play a good game, uh, improve from today, obviously. Uh, but today, of course, was a kind of a reality check on, on the level uh, from the top teams. Now, Manchester United could face disciplinary action from UEFA after a bottle was thrown at Angel Di Maria. The Argentine international was mercilessly booed by the home fans at Old Trafford. He also ended up crashing into the perimeter wall after being cleaned out by the United captain, Ashley Young. Probably lucky to stay on the pitch after that was Young. A fan from the home end threw a bottle at Di Maria as he went to take a corner in the second half. The former United midfielder did take it as a joke. He even pretended to take a swig from the beer. UEFA are unlikely to be so forgiving. The incident is expected to be included in in the referee's match report and with a fine or even a partial stadium closure likely to be due after missiles are thrown in the game. That's usually the punishment UEFA will hand out. They might close a section of the ground. Well, Spurs are preparing to take on Borussia Dortmund in the Champions League later. Eric Dyer missed the last game, a 3-1 win against Leicester with the virus. Eric Lamello is out with a back injury. Both returned to training with the squad yesterday ahead of the first leg of that last 16 match. Left-back Danny Rose out with a shin injury. Striker Harry Kane and midfielders Deli Alley and Ben Davies remain sidelined. Jaden Sancho is likely to be included in the starting 11 for Dortmund. The Englishman scored the opener in their 3-0 win over Hoffenheim over the weekend. Thomas Delaney has warned the English media, though, not to overhype him. Now we're here in England, and you know you're world famous for hyping your your, your own players. So uh, so we try to to keep him on the ground because no doubt he has a, a big big future in front of him, and he will make great things. But you know it takes hard work. It it takes taking everything seriously. 
Wasn't a good night for Martin O'Neill and Nottingham Forest. He's not happy that they were denied a win after they conceded late on against West Brom. Jay Rodriguez scored a last-minute penalty to salvage a 2-2 draw at the Hawthorns. O'Neill felt it was a dive. He confronted the referee who admits he made a human error. Bristol City are up one place to fifth after coming from behind to beat QPR 2-1. Second bottom, Bolton got a much-needed win with a 1-0 victory away to Birmingham. Rotherham came from two down to draw 2-2 with Hull. While Millwall and Sheffield Wednesday played out a goal to draw, Steve Bruce blamed a kit clash for that result. He said both teams had a colour clash with the strips and forgot how to pass to each other. Well, I suppose we have two competitions that are uh, being announced today, and one is the. That's the FAI's Director of Competitions, Fran Gavin. We're going to hear from him in a moment. It looks like he's jumped the gun once again. The FAI's plan for a cross-border Champions of Ireland contest has been thrown into doubt. Fran Gavin announced plans for an end-of-season two-legged clash between the SSE Tristy League Premier Division champions and the Northern Ireland Football League champions. Both officials in Belfast released a statement claiming they were surprised by the announcement. They said, we look forward to consultation and receiving further detail regarding this opportunity, which we will consider with our member clubs. Now, here is well, I suppose we have two competitions that are uh, being announced today, and one is the champions. We'll play the champions of the uh, Danske Bank uh, Northern Ireland Professional Football League at the end of the season, um, and I think that's a welcome one. There, we, we'll have further announcements of that in a couple of weeks' time. Yeah, this game to North feeds us out as well. Like the Satanta Cup was around for years, and it was a great competition. You know, it stopped for a few years as well, so it's the first time that we've had something like this in a number of years. Yeah. How did the idea come up, and how will it all work? Well, I suppose it's something that over the years the clubs have been saying to us, is there any, you know, any chance of the Santa Cup coming back? Because that's what it was known as. Um, and I think this initiative was, was between uh, the FAI and the IFA. Um, and it'll be, initially it'll be the, the, the champions and uh, for the first couple of years, few years. And it may grow, we don't know. But I think it's just welcome that it's a welcome return for it. Um, and I think it, it's, it's good to see it, it really is, yeah. Now, a West Indies cricket player has been charged by the ICC following an incident with the England captain, Joe Root. Shannon Gabriel was warned by the umpires for the language he used on day three of the third test. The comment was not picked up by the microphones, but Root's response was, and people are deciphering exactly what was said to Root, he responded by saying, don't use it as an insult. There's nothing wrong with being gay. Gabriel has been charged with breaching the ICC's code of conduct under Article 2.13, which relates to the personal abuse of a player. Good stuff, Darren. So uh, last night we heard the incredible story of Irish power athlete Paul Keoghan, who survived a massive stroke at the age of 17 to go on to compete at the Rio 2016 Paralympic Games after just two years' preparation. Here's Paul's first memories after suffering that stroke. What's your first clear memory of being told what is dreadful news? Yeah, like that's the scary thing. Like they just, when you have a stroke, it's Doctors can't tell you. Like, it's very hard for them to know what kind of a recovery you're going to make. So, like, obviously, they need to be, they need to give you, they need to be relatively bleak, I think, just because they can't be too optimistic. They can't give you a, a sense of, a uh, false sense of security or, what's the phrase I'm looking for? A sense of false hope. Yeah. But, um, like, I remember, like, I was told I probably, I wouldn't have been t- the attention span for my leaving cert because, you know, it's not only physical, the chances were there was cognitive deficits there as well. Now, luckily, I'm so lucky because I think that's another kettle of fish entirely. I'm very lucky that cognitively I never actually lost, 
like I was very tired for maybe a year or two after the stroke but luckily it was all physical all of the side effects were say physical yeah and then it was the same like the, at the time when after my stroke I had no feeling I it was like it wasn't there and they couldn't tell me whether I would ever come back or not so that's, yeah, that's, like, that's devastating I mean it's terrifying well, yeah, you're like, 17 years old yeah. you're getting that news did, I, you, the only did your ball cry for a couple of days um, it, like I said I went in blasé and when I got those news I think as well I, it didn't sink in I'd say it was surreal I yeah. never I don't ever remember I don't ever remember feeling sorry for myself or I don't ever remember looking in the mirror thinking oh like what am Why I going to do like the only memory I have there is I remember you know the little pots of jelly you get in the hospital whenever you get them you always get those and I remember thinking just sitting there thinking it was this is about two weeks after my after I had the stroke and my arm my feeling had started to come back into my arm and I remember thinking I'm not going to eat any food unless I feed it to myself with my left arm mm. I remember just sitting there for like five or six hours trying to eat this little pot of jelly and like sure it just all ended up on the floor like yeah. I didn't get near it but I that was that's the only clear memory I have like yeah, it's a pretty amazing story and you can watch the full thing back on our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com forward slash off the ball. And as we've been letting you know all week, this Valentine's Day, you can show some heart by donating to the Irish Heart Foundation. You can go over to irishheart.ie forward slash donate to leave a donation. So we're turning on to our next piece now. In 1988, Cuban boxing coach Nicholas Cruz Hernandez arrived in Ireland. He went on to become one of the masterminds behind Wayne McCullough getting a silver medal and Michael Carruth taking home gold at the 1992 Games in Barcelona. Here's Andy Lee explaining the impact that Cruz had on Irish boxing. I'm on the way to Paul Leash to interview Nicholas Cruz Hernandez, um, former Irish national team coach, um, a guy who I think had a huge impact and influence on boxing in Ireland over the years. And I think his influence is still felt to this day that he planted a lot of the seeds. I first would have met Nicholas around the year 2000 when I was training for my first ever international competition and even then he was I guess he was an oddity and someone who was very intriguing there was always this level of um, curiosity about him and mysticism about him and the way he'd done things and I guess that was because he was so far ahead of his times Irish boxers were always known for heart, courage and fight, fighting and having all the things that you couldn't teach but with Nicholas he came in to add the extra elements that you need to be a successful international boxer in terms of the finesse of boxing and the ring craft and the generalship that we that you, that is needed. With him, he was trying to add the technique to all the things that was already there. Okay, let's hear from Nicholas Cruz himself. Here he is explaining what it was like to come into the Irish boxing setup in the late 1980s. Nicholas, thank you for agreeing to do this with us today. Thank you for welcoming us into your home. Uh, just to go back to the start, I guess, when you arrived in Ireland in 1988, what was the landscape of Irish boxing at that stage? Well, I was in need of a little bit of guidance and shown of skills of how to teach boxing. That was all. Because the the the, the Irish boxing tradition was there, the fight in the spirit was there. There was no lack of that. There was great determination, both from coaches and boxers. The only thing that was lacking was just the methodology to teach the elements of boxing, the basic 
basics of boxing. That was it. All the Irish boxers, great courage and determination. And, you know, but at that time, when I came here in 1988, that other element of tactic, strategy, cleverness in the ring, that was missing. Mm. I'm sure you sparring and displaying it went a long way to change their minds about their attitude. But did you find there was a lot of resistance to that, to, to having that approach to, to more finesse of boxing? Absolutely, absolutely. And it goes back to the tradition of, um, okay, I'm a boxer, I'm a man, I'm tough. And I'm proving that, I'm making that point all the time. But my point was, with them was, and I actually used to say this as a motto, say, okay, make sure you get your hand up at the end of the fight, you get your hand up as a winner, no matter how. If people say, oh, he did this and he did that, and he was looking, at the end of the day, what's the name that goes, what's the name that goes in the book as a winner? That's what you want to get. Okay, so at the 1992 Games, uh, Michael Carruth beat a Cuban to win his gold, and after that, Cuba didn't want any of their coaches helping other countries to take medals off of them. And Cruz returned to Ireland in 1996 to coach Irish fighters, but was stood down when Cuba contested his involvement with the Irish team, which left Cruz in no man's land. And this put him in a pretty dark place, which he explains to us in this next clip, but he got through that and now works in the Midlands prison in Port Leash, teaching boxing, yoga and Spanish to inmates. The reason for you not travelling, were you vetoed by Ireland or by Cuba? By Cuba. The, Cuba, the Cubans actually uh, wrote a letter or sent a letter to the president of the uh, um, Boxing Federation to, um, to the Irish Amateur Boxing Association asking them to um, drop me off the team, you know, because I had left them in 1996. I was conducting a seminar there in Puerto Rico when I finished. Uh, I, Brendan, uh, the president of the association, uh, the Irish Association of the Science, contacted me, and um, I said, "Yeah, I'll, I'll be open to prepare the team," but that didn't go down well with the Cubans because they wanted me to come back to Cuba after having done the seminar in Puerto, mm-hmm. in Puerto Rico. But besides that, they didn't want me to come to Ireland anymore. And the reason was because Michael Carruth beat a Cuban in the final in 1992 Olympics. And then now, being the Olympics in, in, in Atlanta, which was a little bit of friction between Cuba and America because political reasons, they, they didn't want coaches that were with countries who could take, that could take medals of them. So Nicholas is with Ireland. Ireland have already beaten Cuban at a major competition he's not to be there anymore, we'll bring mm-hmm. him back. So they got very annoyed with me because I, I came over and, you know, that that was what generated a lot of problem after that and my frustration in terms that I couldn't be with the Irish team. And at that time, it was just like, huh, come on, what happened? Is the association taking order from the Cuban? And, you know, I really got very emotional and I started thinking a whole lot of things, you know, why are they doing what the Cubans are asking them to do? You know, I'm here supporting with them, you know, I, 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 I'm with the Irish now, and they are letting me out of the team. Wow, that drove me mad, you know, those days, because it was just like, I don't it for the Irish, and now they're letting me behind. Wow. But anyway, so, it just like everything, you have to put it behind, that's what it, it, it you know, it's tough, <laughs> that's the way it goes, and, and there was a hard time that I had there, suicidal thoughts during that time, it was difficult, I was so, up and down. And so basically, they brought you from Puerto Rico to train the team, 
and then when the Cubans say stop they don't back you and they, they don't send you or, or, or back you and uh, back themselves really they kind of gave in to the Cubans that was it I, I, yeah. kind of, where, where did that leave you then kind of on, on the outside me, it let me last in a way that uh, because uh, the funding that was there I think it was from the Olympic Council for uh, foreign coaches it was gone because then that there was no uh, expenses to cover um, no money to cover my expenses so therefore I ended up <laughs> um, living in the gym and uh, um, cleaning floors and all that which, which which it's it's okay you know it's okay I mean anybody has done that but what really annoyed me at that because that didn't kill me you know I enjoyed doing that I remember seeing Stephen uh, Stephen Reynolds from Sligo and and I said what is it how do you do the mopping with that footwork walking back and said that's what's have to improve footwork you don't do where was on the move so uh, just making fun of it you know it's, it's, it's a physical work it doesn't kill you it's something it gives you a lesson you know but again I, what I was angry and disappointed was that everything failed we we got an agreement we never got it on paper that I was looking after the team training taking the team over there and all of a sudden I'm off the team you know, I'm not off the team because of indiscipline. It's just because somebody else is saying, "Look, get him out of the team." And say, "Why is that?" You know. Yeah, you're quite philosophical about it, and seem you're not bitter or you're not. You just kind of accepted it. Well, yeah, I have to put it behind because what can you do? Yeah. if if I just keep getting angry about it, which I did at the time. Then it's going to be only doing damage to me, and then, like, I ended up, I wanted to take my life and hang myself up over there and had a rope prepared and all that. But then, forgive them, you know, put it behind. And then I speak very highly of the Irish Amateur Boxing, of the Irish uh, Athletic Boxing Association, all what they did throughout the years, and, and I thank them for giving me the opportunity to come here to this beautiful country and do the work that I did, uh, all that. So I, I just look at that in a positive way now. I have no resentment, hold on anything against anybody, mm. you know. That's perfectly fine. I wish I could, with everybody in this country, anywhere, that I got, had a disagreement and everything, that I could yeah, and shake hands and that's it, because that's, that's just who I am. I'm a human being that makes mistakes like anybody else but I don't go out there set myself to do anything intentionally and this is what happened with boxing during those years you know I wanted I had a dream I had a dream and I wish I had an opportunity one day to turn things around because I can feel I feel myself capable and able to do it again and again whether I do it better than anybody else I don't want to make say a word about that I just what I have, the things that I have, I know how far I can go. Because that's what it is. That's what got me. In my country, wherever, whenever I work with any boxers there as well, and, and, and here, and the ability that I know, I mean, this big 90% of, of the work needs to be done mentally with the athletes of any sport. If you get that part right, then it's very difficult to stop. You spoke about the power of, of psychology, the mentality of a fighter and of a person, and it's all in the mind. You spoke to me earlier about being in a dark place. You mentioned having a rope. Anyone can find themselves in a dark place, 
and we've all been there but how how do you pull yourself out of that when you've gone to those dark places and how, what's your method or how do you find the strength to pull yourself out of that it's very difficult it's not like one two three or something that you will find in the book and like a rule that will apply to everyone you know it will be all different it will be something you know so one thing is just what we just set in the mind as a goal as a goal what, what do I want do I really want it to come back so that uh, desire to to stay and to be good for humanity to provide something to 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 go to work that that then becomes in an incentive that will motivate you to come out but otherwise if it doesn't exist that drive then you're floating there you're wandering around in the water you know but you have to get yourself grounded like thinking I'm going to come out because I'm going to be useful to these people to, to the others that are there I'm going to help them I'm going to do my best so when that can, then there's a, there's a desire there's a strength there from inside it's just like a divine force force that will bring you up from there and help you bring you up giving back is that your role now in in, ter- in terms of working in the prison system is that what you see as giving back you can imagine the classes and everyone that I come across mm. in where I work you teach yoga Spanish and boxing and boxer size, yeah, and so that is just everyone to me is a human being. I I just call them my students, and and then I I, I feel so joyful as well working with them and seeing that uh, I can help them come out of a difficult situation or having a talk or work with work out with them in the class and. Uh, I feel that they are happy to they come back again, and then I feel like I'm okay that this, I'm, I'm doing good with this, and so I see that their progression in the class just like that in terms of emotions, how they are responding because I already know that they are in a difficult situation. That doesn't matter how difficult my situation could be, I'm not where they are, so it is more difficult for them where they are there, you know, and what may come after that, what's what's they're looming in the future for them. So what in their present tense, walking in front of them in the class, I'm going to make a difference. This is what I, what comes in my head every time I, come, I walk into a classroom with them. I say, I have to make a difference. Brilliant stuff there between Andy Lee and Nicholas Cruz. And for anyone affected by that discussion around depression and suicidal thoughts, you can contact Pieta House on 1800-247-247 or the Samaritans on 116-123. And the full 30-minute interview is now available as well on youtube.com forward slash off the ball. And that's pretty much all we got time for this Wednesday morning on OTBAM. The Gaelic football show is next up here on our social channels. It's live today at half past 12. Off the ball on the radio then tonight from 7 o'clock. Our math footballer Jamie Clark will join Joe and we've also got an interview with Gary Ringrow so pretty good show coming up there which will also include live updates of course uh, between Spurs and Borussia Dortmund in the Champions League we're back here on OTBAM tomorrow morning from 7.45am and we've got a good show ourselves Kieran Donaghy and Ronan O'Gara are going to join us we'll chat to you then bye bye for now so if you like this you'll probably also like OTBAM Ireland's only sports breakfast show subscribe to the OTBAM podcast stream or catch the show live on YouTube Twitter Facebook or offtheball.com every morning from 7.45 a.m.